Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Not written necessarily that statement, but that idea. That, uh, and I've written about this before, but there's really no sense banking on normal. There's normal is an illusion, isn't it? I mean, the holidays can certainly be stressful, busy, uh, expensive sometimes. But at least we see them coming. I mean, they might not be normal life, but we, we know every year when they come, right? Uh, and we can at least get the plan down for the abnor- abnormality that we know is around the corner. Uh, the abnormality of the holiday season, but I do get it. And so in that sense, there's really nothing wrong with breathing a sigh of relief when, uh, when, when we're contemplating a week uh, or a month that's coming up with uh, no extra cooking, no extra shopping, no extra meetings, practices, rehearsals, programs. Uh, and of course, travel, and of course, cleaning. That's what we did yesterday. But there are plenty of genuine abnormalities that we face from time to time that make the idea of normal life, that very idea just can seem silly. Uh, Let's face it, I would rather face the madness of Christmas shopping once a month than face a cancer diagnosis or a car wreck or a kid in trouble or the death of a loved one. The list goes on. The madness of Christmas really isn't much compared to all that, is it? Plus, with Christmas at the center of the holiday season, this, uh, the whole madness of the season really should be a season of joy for us. And I think it is for a lot of us. I enjoy all that, just knowing that all this stuff that's going on, all the craziness, even the, people, the stuff that people complain about, really Jesus at the middle, uh, is at the middle of all that, and we can rejoice with great joy Uh, even without the snow. We love Christmas, but the question is, I guess, is if we had Christmas every month, would it be as special? That's actually where I'm going with that message. But first. Next week, we are starting our three-week church-wide fast. This is not mandatory. I'm encouraging you to participate in it, but I can't require it. Nobody's going to be excommunicated or disfellowshipped for not fasting. Amen? But this fast has become something that many of you look forward to, uh, and it really is a good way to start the year. So let me start uh, this time with some of the technical details. A true fast, of course, by definition, is abstaining from all food and some would say all stimulants, meaning coffee too, uh, f- uh, but, and drinking only water uh, for a specified period of time. And uh, in the Christian and broader religious sense, this is done for spiritual reasons so that we can devote ourselves to uh, extra time and extra focused prayer Hearing from God, often uh, this is done in times of crisis. Biblically, this is certainly true. In order to address a specific prayer need, uh, you remember when Jonah preached in Nineveh, we can look at that in Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. 
Now the word of the Lord, this is Jonah 3.1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Now pay attention to that. The message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Is that the message God gave him? Where's the God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let every one turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So, fasting paid off, didn't it? And wasn't see, we'll see here in a little bit, wasn't God rewarding their fasting? What he was noticed that they turned from their evil ways. And I also think it's not safe to read that as in the entire city, man, woman, child, and every animal went without water for 40 days. I don't think, that, I don't think we can read that into it. They did proclaim a fast. The 40 days was apparently the limit that uh, God had put on them, that if they did not repent within that time, God would destroy the city. But the city was spared, at least for a season. Uh, David fasted individually. This was not a nationwide or citywide fast, but when the prophet Nathan confronted him about his sin with Bathsheba, we can look at that in, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. 2 Samuel 12, 13. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who was born to you shall surely die. This was a child that Bathsheba was pregnant as a result of David's sin, his adultery. Then Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some, some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went down, then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. 
Then his servants said to him, What is this you have done? You have fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live? But now he is, he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Now, it's a sobering passage, and I admit it raises a couple questions. You know, what sin did the baby commit? And the Lord struck the child? These are tough, and we can address those questions, but not today. All I want you to see is that David made the decision, took it upon himself to fast in an effort to pray fervently for a specific reason. I think, well, nothing happened. It didn't work. But David shows us something here, that there is, this is, this was a man, again, we know more about the character of God because of David, specifically David's Psalms, than we, than we, that we, we owe more to David, I think, for our knowledge of the character of God than we do anybody else. Because the things he writes, how well he knew God, a man after God's own heart. We know so much about how to worship God because of David. And it was David's heart that when he sought the Lord specifically and fervently about something, he would fast. All right. Now, Jesus specifically said, when you fast, you know, he said the time would come when, when his, his, uh, his servants would fast as well. Uh, don't do it in certain ways. He says, go, you know, it says David didn't anoint himself. See that Daniel didn't either. We're going to look at that passage here in a minute. But Jesus said, when we do it, we do it differently. Make sure you wash your face, comb your hair. Don't draw attention to the fact that you're fasting. Uh, and it also means that when we fast, it's not, it's not always just because of a crisis or anything like that. But in this case, it was. The religious leaders of Jesus' day apparently did fast regularly. Uh, Jesus tells the parable. We can look at this in Luke chapter 18. Jesus speaking says, also he spoke uh, this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess, and the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, this is important because Jesus is not condemning the fact that the Pharisee was fasting. Nothing wrong with regular fasting, even twice a week, which I assume to mean he skipped a meal twice a week or he went without food two whole days a week. He's pointing out that fasting didn't make the Pharisee any more righteous than the tax collector. And, of course, the fact that he was boasting about it and literally putting his trust in the fasting, among other things. Jesus himself fasted for 40 days in the wilderness at the direction of the Holy Spirit. Uh, there are many, many references to fasting in the Bible. And uh, as Rich, Richard Foster points out in his book, uh, Celebration of Discipline, the list of people in the Bible who fasted reads like a who's who. Uh, seemed like everybody of, of, of uh, importance fasted at some point. Uh, all that to say that we can fast in times of crisis. We can fast at the specific direction of the Holy Spirit, or we can fast because we decide to, just as an act of our devotion in an effort to press in 
push beyond some distractions and other things and simply devote more time uh, and, again, focus to our time with God and his word. Now, as we look forward to this church-wide fast, I have to tell you that if you are not accustomed to regular fasting, um, and let me say, I mentioned Foster a second ago. A lot of times during the, I, I will read some passages from his chapter on fasting in this book, which I think still, I still think is excellent. There's some things I've, I've had to reconsider over the years about how hard I pushed that book. But in his, in his chapter on fasting, he does give a couple pages of really good practical advice to those who want to pursue this as a spiritual discipline. And uh, one of the things he says don't do is if you've never fasted before, don't start with a three-week total fast. Uh, there, there's, it could be a risk health-wise to you. But if you, uh, especially this time of year when we're accustomed, we've just stretched out our stomachs and eaten everything we wanted for a week, and then all of a sudden we're just going to eat nothing. Um, there, there's better ways to go about it. There's better ways to prepare your body for it. So if the Lord directs you, hey, this is a three-week fast, I want you to drink nothing but water, listen to the Lord. Uh, but we're going to look at some other options this morning. Um, because, again, a three-week total fast is kind of extreme for those who are not leading a fasted lifestyle. So what we typically encourage during this time is what is loosely called a Daniel fast. You've heard of this, right? Daniel fast. In uh, Daniel chapter 1, verse 12, this is... Uh, of course, right at the beginning of this book, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar is frustrated because his, his advisors can't tell him the dream, and um, he says in, in uh, verse 12 of chapter 1, Please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Now, these guys, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were uh, favored, and they were in a position where they, among the captives of Israel, were, uh, they had budgeted to them a portion of the king's delicacies. They were not just being fed, they were being fed with food from the king's own table, the best stuff, the richest food. This was part of their payment for the job that they were doing there in Babylon. They were in enemy territory, remember? And he says uh, to the guy who's delivering the food to them, whose job it was to keep these young men healthy and oversee their training, just give us vegetables and water for the next 10 days. And a lot of you know the rest of the story. The, the, the steward there was a little bit nervous about that because he's like, man, it's, it's my neck on the line. If, if you, the, you show up before the king looking all weak and strung out, I'm the one that's going to be executed. And that's when he said, give us 10 days and you come in and check us out. And at the end of 10 days, they were healthier, ruddier uh, than, than, than all the rest of them who continued to eat the king's meat. And then uh, there's another example of that also in Daniel chapter 10. When Daniel uh, set himself to understand a vision and a message from the Lord, it says in Daniel 10, beginning in verse 2, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. So specifically a Daniel fast is uh, vegetables uh, or fruits and vegetables only and water to drink. And uh, more broadly, it is a fast that restricts certain categories of food. And the broad category that is restricted is pleasant food. You know what a Daniel fast is? Three weeks of eating nothing you like. Now, I don't know. I haven't considered the theological implications for those of you who would rather have a carrot 
than a Twinkie or broccoli than a pizza because a Daniel fast really is fruits and vegetables. But maybe if you really desire broccoli and carrots, you need to eat pizza for three weeks. I don't, I don't really, haven't really thought this through. No, but seriously, there's something I want you to pay attention to. The Daniel fast has become popular and well-known because it's, well, it's been rebranded as the Daniel diet. You've seen this probably, haven't you? The Daniel diet. Did I tell you about that guy? I think I did. I'm going to tell you this story again because there's bound to be one or two of you that haven't heard it. This is uh, several years ago when I was working at Sam's, and I recognized a guy there doing shopping that I remembered from way back in the day when I worked overnights at Richard's Grocery Store. I'm talking back in the 80s, and I'm seeing this guy in the early 2000s. And, uh, and he was, I remembered him because he was an older guy with, with I mean, bright white hair, but he always just had this glow. He just was a healthy-looking individual. And he came through my uh, register at least twice a week, and his cart was always about half full. But what it was half full of was nothing but raw fruits and vegetables and whole grain bread, maybe some uh, brown rice, maybe some nuts, never anything processed, never, he, this guy just ate healthy. Uh, apparently ate a lot, but he ate healthy. And uh, I saw this guy now, 20-some years later, and he is looking the same. I mean, he looks great. And I said, hey, didn't you used to shop at Richard's? Yeah, I did. I said, I have a cashier. I'd see you come in. You'd buy all this healthy stuff, and it looks like you're still eating that way. Is this a, is this a lifestyle decision for you? He goes, yeah, I just find I eat this stuff. I, I believe I'm going to live longer, and I feel better. And uh, he says, so what are you doing now? And uh, I said, well, I'm, I'm doing this. Uh, I said, I'm also in the ministry. I was a youth pastor at the time. And I said, that's my, that's, that's my full-time job. I do this a couple days a week. And he says, oh, really? He says, uh, so you read the Bible, right? I said, yeah. I'm like, all right, I'm going to find out this guy's a Christian. He goes, I said, you read the Bible? He goes, yes. He says, if you read the Bible, you will discover dietary laws that will extend your life. And he starts talking about how basically he reads the Bible for these dietary secrets. Not his salvation, not his soul, not for anything life, genuinely life-giving, but just for his physical health. Good night. That's not what this is about. But I bring it up because that can almost be a distraction during this time. If we give up the candy, the pizza, uh, whatever, uh, pleasant foods that aren't maybe the best for us. And we restrict ourselves, and of course the more restricting it is, often the more healthy it is. If you eat nothing but fruits and vegetables, Russ Gulford and I did that for, what was it, two weeks, three weeks? How long was it? Three weeks. Uh, back in the 90s. And uh, some, one of us was more strict than the other one was. I won't say which one. One of us at one time decided it was fruits and vegetables, so canned peaches with syrup was okay. I don't remember which one of it what, if it was, but it wasn't me. Uh, <laughs> no, but I can tell you that for three weeks, eating nothing but basically raw fruits and vegetables, uh, first of all, it was hard because I was constantly smelling things and craving things that I refused to let my body have. I can also tell you that I ate a lot. It's like I was constantly eating a banana or a uh, I got so bored with eating some of these vegetables, you know, like, you know, I wanted to eat good stuff. I wanted to feed my body stuff that, I, that would still fuel me and, and nourish me. 
but I got tired of crunching the broccoli and the carrots and the celery, so I started putting them in, in the blender, and it was gross, this green sludge, but I'm just getting... You have to eat a lot of fruits and vegetables to get your caloric intake, right? So, but I found, though, that at the end of three weeks, man, I felt like a million dollars. I, I was, I'd, I've dropped uh, an insane amount of weight for such a short time. I was healthy. I was energetic. The problem is, you will probably experience that. It's not a problem. You'll probably experience that if you do a strictish fast. The key and the challenge is to keep your mind on why we are fasting. That's a side effect. It's not the goal. And it's particularly tough this time of year. Why? Because New Year, resolutions, we've just come off. I don't know about you. I tend to be somewhat undisciplined with my eating anyway. But during the holidays, when people are bringing you stuff, there's always a plate of cookies, candy, and just stuff. And then the meals, the formal formal celebrations. We had a taco bar at Christmas this year. And uh, I had, I don't know, I can't tell. It's like I didn't stop eating. I had two tacos at lunch, and I went back, got some chips and cheese, and then some more chips and cheese, and then the cake, all the desserts. And I enjoyed it, but guess what? I'm miserable at the end of the day. And I'm miserable the next day. It didn't stop me from eating the next day. But you're just thinking, well, we get to, oh, we'll, start, we'll start fresh here in a week. And we do. And there's the, there's the health side of it. And there's nothing wrong with being concerned about your health and, and taking your health seriously. But the purpose of this fast is spiritual. Okay? Keep that in mind. But it's just, like, it's just like salvation. What's the main thing? We are being saved from hell, saved from sin, saved from death. But guess what? There are benefits to salvation, aren't there? He heals all your diseases. He fills your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The main thing is salvation. The point here is that we are foregoing the pleasure of eating in order to pursue something vastly more important. What we are doing is we are exercising our God-given authority over our appetite, refusing to allow our appetite to become our master so that we can more fully submit to our true master, the Lord Jesus Christ. I say this every year. A good way to think about fasting is it is the laying aside of something natural in pursuit of something supernatural. I say this too. It's easy to get the impression from Nineveh, from David, and from some biblical accounts that fasting is a way to get God's attention on us. It's not. That's not what fasting is for. We know that the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth so that he can show himself strong on behalf of of those whose heart is completely his. He's looking. You don't have to get his attention. Fasting doesn't get God's attention on me. It gets my attention on God, or it's supposed to. C.S. Lewis said that. He was arguing with a, uh, not arguing, he was having a discussion with an atheist. And C.S. Lewis was going through a tough time, and the guy was asking him, how are you dealing with it? He says, well, I'm praying. I'm praying more and more. And the guy says, "Uh, Jack, I hate to intrude upon your grief here, but I just have to ask you, if you believe in an almighty God, a sovereign God, what is the point in praying? Isn't God going to do what he's going to do anyway? Why do you waste time trying to change an unchanging God? And Lewis looks at him and says, prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes me. Fasting is kind of like that. Prayer... Fasting will, will, will change us. Now, again, we talked about the eating and all the resolutions and how there really is a, 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 there needs to be the spiritual aspect to this. Our focus can be off if we're not careful. Uh, 
you know, and here's something to think about too. When you diet, like say you're doing keto. What are the, what are the how many of you have ever done keto? Okay, I think, really, that's it? A lot more people had done keto. Uh, but when you do keto and you look up recipes, what are people always trying to do? Here's a way to make something that tastes just like something you're not supposed to have. You can't have carbs. So here's a way to make a pizza crust out of cauliflower that tastes just like real pizza crust. Or make it out of cheese. It's even better. It's good, and they do a pretty good job of it. And we try to find, well, here's a way, if you're not going to eat meat, we're going to do something to make these vegetables taste like a hamburger. What's that? They got that Whopper out now, right? uh, An impossible Whopper. That ain't right. (laughs) Ain't nobody trying to make a steak taste like broccoli, are they? But again, the whole point is, the pleasure of it. Well, if I'm, if I'm going to go and make this extra effort, I'm only going to eat fruits and vegetables. But I'm going to do everything I can to doctor them up to make them be as, as pleasant and exciting and meat-like or sweet-like as possible. We're kind of missing the point. It's to forego the pleasure. It's not that we're trying to poison ourselves. I'm going to make this taste as gross as possible. We're just trying to keep it as simple as possible so that we are not focusing on the pleasure of food for three weeks. And realizing during those three weeks that we find that when we feast on the word of God, that it is more pleasant than we ever realized. Because that's the thing that satisfies us more than anything else. I think I told this story before too. This was uh, a guy that, uh, that I was, a, one, of, one of my fellow counselors at Canaan Land uh, found that he was, uh, he did two things and I think they were they were concurrent. He went on a vacation, and he preached a message about this called Killer Vacation. And during this time, you know, he'd been working a lot, and he took a week, he might have taken two weeks, where he traveled a lot, he, and he went out to eat, and he met up with friends, and he made new friends, and he did everything except his daily devotions, his prayer, his time in the Word. He was away from, he was so used to all of his time in the Word was to prepare for classes. And since he wasn't teaching or anything, he just ignored it. And he said he found out as the vacation went on, he got hungrier and hungrier and hungrier. And he just kept, suddenly his focus was more and more. And where am I going to eat next? What are we going to have for supper? What are we going to have for breakfast tomorrow? Where can we go? And that's, I'm a little bit like that on vacation too. There's, hey, we're in a different town. Let's try a new restaurant. Nothing inherently wrong with that. But he found that what was happening was he was starving himself spiritually and trying to plug that hole with physical food. You can flip that around. I'm saying you have to starve yourself, but that's really one of the great focuses of a fast is if you deny yourself the pleasure of food and plug that hole with what truly nourishes us. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You really can live on that. Now, uh, this is not true of everyone, and it's certainly not true, even if it's been true of you in the past, doesn't mean it's going to be true this year. I have found, and I have shared, and many of you have shared with me and agreed that three weeks is a pretty good time period for this. Uh, And one of the reasons for that is the first several days is a pretty tough adjustment. Again, especially coming out of a season like we just came out of. 
when you're used to just eating whatever you want and then suddenly you realize you can't have that, that can occupy an awful lot of your thinking. You're thinking about how hungry you are and how much you miss certain food. On the other end of it, when you get within a few days of the end of it, again, if you're like me or like I at least have been, you start thinking about the end of the fast and, ooh, the family meal. Start thinking about that dessert table, the saloon beef. If you're, if you're doing without meat and sweets, that's typically what I do. I avoid meat, I avoid bread, I avoid sweets. Um, I usually give myself a have in the past. Not sure I'm going to this year. You know, make some, you know, cook some vegetables, cook some rice with your vegetables, pour a little uh, plain yogurt on it or something. Um, but the, a lot of the things that you deny yourself, you start thinking about, especially as it's almost over. I get to have it again in three more days. But that middle section there, middle week, 10 days or so, where you're kind of, you've adjusted, and yet you're too far away from the end of it to, to allow your, your mind to go there, that can be the richest and most satisfying part of these three weeks. Because you get in kind of a groove, and you realize, I really can master my appetites, and I really can submit more fully to my true master, and I really can feast on his word. But I encourage you to make the most of it, and really commit to it. And as the weeks come on, as the weeks progress, I'll give you some specific things that we can be praying about and looking at. Uh, Now let me switch gears here and tell you where we are going message-wise for the next few weeks. In the past, we've done a theme. This is going to be a year of fill-in-the-blank. We didn't do it last year. We're not really doing it this year. Uh, 2020, of course. I have an obvious one. I wrote about this in, my, uh, in the newsletter article. I don't know if that's available yet, but it will be soon if it's not. Uh, I encourage you to read the article. But uh, 2020, what do you think? Vision, right? Year of vision. And I'm sure there are churches all over the country, maybe all over the world, who have proclaimed 2020 a year of vision. I'm not opposed to that. But what I'm going to preach for the next five weeks is a series I developed many years ago. I've never preached it here. And I don't actually have it written down. I don't have it between covers. I just remember the outline. And I'm going to redevelop it for this congregation. And uh, so the, the material that you'll hear is not new. I, I get nervous when something's exciting only because it's new. But I do think it'll be fresh. I think the perspective on this stuff will be fresh to you. Uh, and in keeping with the 2020 theme of vision, the name of this series Uh, is take a good look. Take a good look. That was the title of it when I I developed it 10 years ago or so. The five messages are, number one, looking up. So we'll be looking at God, taking a look at who our Heavenly Father is. The second message is looking down. Guess who we're going to be talking about that week? Who's under our feet? We'll be looking at our enemy. The next message, the third one, is looking around. That's looking at the church, looking at our neighbors, looking at the world. The fourth one is looking back. This is when we look at the past and how to properly examine the past. And the last one is looking ahead, which is where we're looking at the future. So the series will extend for a couple weeks past the end of the fast, unless, of course, you guys want to do a five-week fast. Kick, that's crazy talk. No, I do encourage you to be here for the messages, all right? 
And I wanted to share this stuff with you today so that you can be thinking, even though the fast doesn't start until next week, I want you to be thinking. I want you to be discussing it with your family, with your children. I encourage you to do this as families and praying about this fast before it begins. Specifically, think about the kinds of things you'll be fasting. Now, we talked about the Daniel fast. And again, I'm not saying, hey, I want everybody eating only fruits and vegetables. What I'm, the, the message I hope you got and what I really, the point I want to make is pick something to do without. Something that you will miss every day. I think some people, uh, like, look, we can, uh, you, can, uh, you can do the fruits and vegetables only. You can mix in some healthy carbs in there if you want, whatever. Um, uh, abstain from all sugar. That's something some people do, even if you don't do the Daniel fast. Uh, so, yeah, I can do without soda. I can do without the, the candy and, and the sweets for three weeks. But if you do that, I would encourage you also to avoid artificial sweetener. Because again, it's the pleasure of the sweetness that you're supposed to be fasting from, not simply the calories. Does that make sense? Um, or you can skip a meal. Abstain from your favorite meal of the day. If you look forward to dinner more than any, anything else, eat breakfast and lunch and skip dinner. Um, if you can't, for maybe for medical reasons, if you can't uh, fast or change your diet much, um, or maybe, again, you're already one of those rabbits that eats nothing but fruits and vegetables, maybe you can abstain from TV or the Internet or video games. Again, it, it really needs to be something that's going to affect you daily. I make this joke every year. It's, it's really not a fast. If, you, if there's a TV show you watch once a week and you decide to fast that, um, you're going you're gonna to fast your one specific hour of TV a week. Cut off TV altogether. Or, or something else that, that is taking some time, that is a... It doesn't, I'm not talking about sinful stuff. You know, I'll fast... I'll fast uh, <laughs> crazy, you know, it's an example every year. I'm going to fast uh, uh, drugs and alcohol. I'm going to fast adultery. I'm going to fast, you know, the things that you know you're, you're not supposed to be doing anyway. That's a different, that's a different deal, okay? These are legitimate pleasures that we're supposed to lay down uh, for this period of time. Uh, something that takes a lot of your time that you can then invest in prayer and Bible reading. And also, finally, to kind of bring this around to where I started at the beginning of this message. I asked, since we're looking at the focus, that's really what the fast is bringing us to. Would Christmas be as special if we celebrated it every month. And think about it. You know, God himself appointed feast days, holy days, seasons, times and seasons. Tells us in Genesis that he arranged delights in the heaven to indicate times and seasons. And this speaks specifically to the feasts of Israel. And they were yearly, many of them. And, the, and they, what were they for? They were for remembering certain things God has, had done, celebrating certain truths about him. It was, but they weren't supposed to forget about these things the rest of the year. But God gave them these yearly celebrations. Would Christmas be as special if we celebrated every month? Well, the reality is that these days and seasons that God appointed uh, were everyday realities. They celebrated them specifically at certain times of the year, but they were everyday realities. I love Christmas because of the way it reminds me of a concrete moment in time when God fulfilled his promise to give us a Messiah. 
But the story doesn't end there. I know a lot of people, when Christmas is over, some people are breathing a sigh of relief, but for others, it's almost like postpartum depression. I put so much time and effort into the decoration, into the preparing, and now the presents are open, and it's over. But speaking of presents, I didn't have this written down in my message. I wish I had. I just thought of it. Uh, And again, you've probably heard this story too. There was one Christmas when I got, I, I guess... Present-wise, it was my favorite Christmas ever. I got a Verdi bird. Anybody remember the Verdi bird? It was a helicopter that went around on the end of a wire, a rigid wire, but it really did fly like a helicopter. You had two, you had one to control the pitch and one to control the, the whatever, the, the lift, and you'd just fly this thing around in a circle, and you could do it precisely and pick things up with it. I wanted one of these so bad, and I got it that year, and I also got a BB gun. I think it was the same year. It was a big, big year. And it was so exciting. The moment opening those gifts was so exciting and seeing what it was. I can still, I still can feel or hear the echoes of that moment in my soul. Oh, I've got a Verdi bird. Now, I did not wake up the next day and experience that same excitement of opening the present. But guess what? I still had the Verdi bird. I still had the BB gun. And I enjoyed those two presents for years. I still have that BB gun. Not in great shape. But I still have it. Christmas is over. Jesus is still here. We celebrate Christmas with the giving of gifts to commemorate the greatest gift ever given. But once Jesus was on the scene, it wasn't like, okay, Jesus is born, now what's the next big thing? Once he was on the scene, it changed everything. Didn't it? Everything was different. We celebrate, again, God giving us Jesus. And when we receive that gift, when we receive Jesus, it's not a one-time, soon-forgotten event. It changes or should change everything that happens after that. Too often, we only think about how receiving Jesus will change everything after we die. And it does that, certainly. But it's supposed to change things starting now. The gift remains. The gift of Jesus literally changed the world, even for those who rejected and continue to reject him. The the world is different because of Jesus. History is divided No matter what they call it now, it's still divided between before Christ and after his birth. How much more should he change us, those of us who have received him? If he's changed the whole world, even changed the world for those who reject him, how much should he change our world, our lives? If you are unsatisfied with the difference that Jesus Christ has made in your life, this fast is a great opportunity to become re-energized, recommitted, and re-centered. Uh, we haven't done a podcast in a while, you know, between what, everything that's been going on in, in Matt's life and uh, the, the general busyness of the, the craziness of this summer. We're going to get back on it. Uh, but there's, there, there's a handful of podcasts that I would like you to go back and listen to. Just check them out. Some of them are, are there's, a, there's some goofy ones, but then we kind of found some direction and, and, and kind of got it on the right track. But uh, uh, as I uh, told you 
Uh, this has been a number of months ago now. Uh, Dr. Joe Thomas was in here to do a series of interviews on the Reformation. It was the 500th anniversary of Luther's uh, 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church. And, so, and he's a Christian historian by trade. This is what he does. And so this was a big year for him. He was doing a lot of uh, visiting other churches and radio interviews and things. So we had him in to do a podcast on Luther and the Re- Reformation. But he ended up during that first sort of the get-to-know-you session, his, the first podcast we did with him was basically him sharing his testimony. And I remember I was privileged to know Joe uh, during, his, uh, during the, the months leading up to his conversion. I met Joe when he was an unbeliever, but who was seeking. And uh, I was one of the people he was talking to, asking questions of. And uh, he talk, he tells in this podcast, there's just this great line that I want to share with you, how he questioned, he knew, it wasn't so much that he, he wasn't, it wasn't sort of an apologist's uh, dream. He wasn't looking for evidence. He knew. He was raised to know there was a God. His, his need was more of a, an existential angst kind of thing. He needed that meaning. He needed that center. He needed to know what is it that gives life meaning. And as he searched, he was actually sitting in a uh, crowd of college students watching a film that had been produced by Francis Schaeffer. I don't know if you, how many of you remember Francis Schaeffer, the great uh, 20th century philosopher. Uh, And at the end of it, somebody stood up and gave an altar call, kind of an ad hoc kind of deal because it really wasn't that kind of meeting. And Joe said, I found myself praying that prayer as this guy led it from the pulpit. He says, and nothing, I didn't feel like anything changed, but I knew I meant that prayer. I meant that prayer. And then here's the line that just gives me goosebumps when he shares it. And he said, so I went to bed that night and when I opened my eyes the next morning, the world was on fire. And he says, and nothing has ever been the same since. Stand up with me. It is my prayer, because I think there are a number of you who experienced something just like that. Now, everybody's got a different story. Why you came to Christ, when you came to Christ, under what circumstances, what he rescued you out of specifically. Many of you just woke up the next day, and it was just, things were different. I want, over the next few weeks, especially during the fast, to recapture that fire. Probably look and think about the the letter in Revelation where the church was warned, you've lost, have this against you, you've lost your first love. I think fasting, giving this extra attention, even for just three weeks, But doing this corporately, doing this as a church, help us rekindle that passion of our first love. Re-energize our appreciation for just what Jesus has done for us, what he continues to do. It's exciting. This is going to be a five-week worth of message that will build your faith. I'm talking, we're going to go back to some basics about our confession and our authority. When we look that first week about who our God is and what our relationship to his, him is, it's going to really nail some things down for the next week when we look at who our enemy is and how we're to deal with him. It's going to be exciting. I think it will refire us. It's going to be more exciting, more fun, more fulfilling, the more of us that are doing it together. So I encourage you to participate. Meanwhile, meanwhile, here's the most important thing I can ask or bring your attention to in this whole message. 
Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you had the experience that I just described, that Joe Thomas described? He prayed a simple prayer and woke up and his world was on fire. Have you ever, going back to the beginning of this service, have you acknowledged that our God reigns? Does he reign in your life? You can't simply just believe that there is a God. You have to know that you are a sinner. You were born a sinner. That you were born with a need for a Savior. That nothing will be right. Nothing will be as it should be until you invite the King of Glory into your life to make it right. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.